and welcome back to another fun episode of the Solo Cast. This is episode two, lighting and stuff like that. I am Carl LeClaire, one of your hosts, and I am joined by the mastermind that helped me even decide to do this particular segment. It's the wonderful Star Wars artist, the world's second biggest Nickelback fan. It's Chris D. Hello, everybody. Wow, quite. I'm Christy. I'm back. <laughs> quite, quite, quite the intro. <laughs> I thought you would play some nickel back there, but um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I was letting the solo music play play pan out there. Sorry, that you is, dropped the ball, Carl. That is on me. I did drop the ball. You're not wrong. Mm-hmm. Here we go. I couldn't cut it as a poor man stealing. I'm sick of living like a blind man. Yeah, yeah. I'm sick of You know who would love Nickelback? Christy. Bes- yeah. Besides Christy, though. Joe Hogan. And I think Joe Hogan actually hates them. Um, but Han Solo, I'm pretty sure, would be a huge Nickelback fan. Yeah, he probably would, actually. Yeah. That's probably what he, like, you know, rocks to in the Falcon once he and Chewie, you know, fly off and secure the ship. Chewie is Chad Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, he's his hair. I don't know. Yeah, yeah he's always growling. <laughs> So, um, welcome back to SoloCast. I, I, hopefully you enjoyed the first episode of this new little segment. And uh, I really wanted to get Chris on early since uh, I was talking with you, Chris, when we were watching the film just the other week and decided to do this full on. And you were kind enough to make that great logo. Thank you for doing that once again. Um, and uh, I really want to talk about like the, the lighting of this film, like the, the cinematography of it, um, because it's really unique and it's really beautiful if you, if you think about it. And uh, I figured we would just talk about the way that this movie is shot sequentially and, and how, how light itself literally, you know, plays a factor in the way this movie looks and feels. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that's a great idea. We should do it. You first. <laughs> I did it. You did it. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> It's a solo quote, by the way. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, actually, to say something intelligent here, um, it light and lighting and the whole cinematography actually play a huge part in the storytelling, or so I think. I don't know. I'm not an expert. But um, yeah, while watching the movie, I feel like um, the light itself plays a super important role on conveying the feelings that Han himself uh, lives through. And I will, of course, follow up with some examples um, a little bit later on. But yeah. Yeah. You know, um, before we actually start talking about it in the, con- you know, the actual specific the specificity of the, the, the color and lighting of the film, I thought it'd be worthwhile to just mention Bradford Young, you know, who is the cinematographer for this movie. And uh, just looking, I just did a little bit of quick background on, you know, uh, on his visual style and uh, something that he's kind of known for is creating these kind of intimate settings with the use of a lot. He tries to use as much natural light as possible. Apparently, Um, he doesn't love to bring in all these big, elaborate uh, lighting set pieces to to light his shots. He he tries to do it as simply as he can, which I think is really cool. Um. So I want to read a quick quote from him 
Um, and this comes from an interview when he was talking about how he likes to set up his shots. So he says, quote, early on when I came upon a technical difficulty while making a film, I would think back to my memories of growing up in Louisville and what the lighting was like in those moments. I still do that to this day. I think about my grandmother's house on Greenwood Avenue and scenes during her wonderful parties. Or I envision the light in my Aunt Marie's kitchen. Where I am, when I am stuck on a technical issue making a film, I access these memories and I know I'm doing the right thing. So, end quote. So I, I think really what he's saying is, is he really tries to make these visuals something very real life. He, he, he likes to make them um, something that seems very real world almost, you know, even in a, even in a, you know, galaxy far, far away. I think he does do a great job of, of giving like really grounded scenes in the movie. Yeah, 100 percent. Um, actually, uh, this quote is very interesting because it really, really? underlines um, what I th- like, what I felt during uh, his movies. Like, just for the for context, he also shot um, Arrival. If any of you knows that movie, um, it's from 2016. Um, not giving you any spoilers, but the lighting there is uh, is very natural in all of the scenes. Um, yeah, that quote was really, really interesting because uh, one big thing about cinematography and cameras uh, is uh, when you watch a movie and you have like this beautiful mountain landscape, it never looks the same than when you actually go there. You know, uh, it's a bit more desaturated um, in real life. And this is uh, like, so like, like solo. It's very desaturated as a movie. Yeah. That's yeah. So, um, Let's talk about the color. Let's talk about the way this is lit and looks and and all that. Um, Let's do it. So, obviously, we open on Corellia, and you know these initial colors. This the the initial color palette is you know this very dark and kind of cold blue. Um, you know when we're in Proxima's lair and all that. And I don't know if you had any of this, and I, th- I think we talked about this before when we were when we were watching the movie last week, but. I remember having an issue at some of the theaters I went to where, right. Cause it's, it's such a dark setting that certain theaters, if I didn't, if it wasn't like a high quality projector, it was really hard to see anything. And it was really frustrating too. Um, you know, whenever I went to a theater that obviously had, you know, the high end projectors and a good screen, like it looked phenomenal. Um, and luckily it looks great on home release. I mean, all the, the streaming content that the Blu-ray that all looks absolutely gorgeous yeah but, yeah, um, yeah did you ever have any of those issues when you saw it in theaters uh actually i only saw it in theater once uh, it was in new york in the uh is it dolby theater like it's it's really nice uh, <laughs> it's like 30 seats and every seat is feels like a car it's, it's it's freaking insane so i only saw it on a really great uh screen with a laser projector and uh or at home, so I never had that problem. Uh, but even with the uh, great equipment, the opening scene is still pretty dark. Like, uh, I, especially in Proximus' uh, lair, if we can call it that, um, it's so dark, it's really hard to, to see any of the details or the, the work that went into the, uh, um, into the props which for me personally makes it interesting because it's mysterious, but I, I guess for a lot of fans, they really want to see every detail of the costumes of the creatures and 
um, that might have caused some problem for people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, it is, right, we refer to it as Proxima's Lair. I feel like we need to rename the podcast to just Proxima's Lair instead of Wampa's Lair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the thing I really like, though, about the way uh, – Proxima's layer looks though is, is is like kind of these you know the, these dark colors these really cold blue colors. Um, I think it even like evokes you know this sense of chilliness, and it also has me thinking about um, in uh, Dante refers to as the way he describes hell in I think it's Paradise Lost. I'm gonna feel like an idiot if I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it's Paradise Lost where Dante describes you know, hell and he describes hell rather than kind of this fiery, hot red and orange place. He describes it as this cold, you know, frozen place. Um, that's very dark and almost like these blue colors. Um, and like the Norse hell, uh, the Norse hell is like frozen over. It's not, um, it's not hot or melting. It's like literally like a frozen wasteland. Yeah. Um, and, and I like that. I mean, that's, you know, what he's really tapping into there is is ultimately like his understanding of hell is the reason it's so cold and dark is because it's completely absent of light it's it's absent of the light of god so therefore it's this cold dark place and um i really feel like proxima's lair kind of is that sort of hell like place it's somewhere cold and dark and uh you know it's 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 not a place that you want to be oh definitely not <laughs> <laughs> Um, but Chris, I think my favorite, my favorite shot though, um, like it, it's, it's obviously very on the nose, but when Kira and Han are escaping from Corellia and they kind of, you know, they're, they're still in kind of the layer proximity. So it's really dark, but then they burst out into the light of the sun and, you know, it's, it's again, kind of on the nose, but it's, it's very symbolic of the fact that they are escaping the dark into the light. And I, I like the way that he shoots that. I mean, kind of that POV shot of you actually going through like this smoke haze out of the dark and then boom, you, you emerge into the light. Exactly. And that's where the good cinematography comes into play because you're, I mean, you obviously did your, your homework with this. So did I, but unconsciously uh, during that entire scene, they are, they're in the dark. And then all of a sudden you see that tunnel and well, it's not really a tunnel. I mean, they're in a hangar and stuff's being constructed on the left and the right. So it's not like super dark, but still, you see this blinding light at the end of the tunnel, and they're getting closer and closer and closer in this POV shot. And then all of a sudden, um, the whole screen is bathed in light and they're outside. So um, light in this entire movie plays the role of uh, hope. And actually freedom. Because if you look at the very first time we see Han and, uh, and Kira together, um, they have the, uh, what's it called? The hyperfuel matter? Yeah, like the coaxium. Coaxium, yeah, exactly. So um, when Han takes out the coaxium, like they're in complete darkness, and he takes it out, and the only um, major light source in that shot is the coaxium. So the light of the coaxium is like their ticket out of there, you know? Mm. It represents the light. It's the only source of light that, that we have in that lair. 
the rest is all dark. Everybody's covering themselves up. They're all living underground, you know. Uh, it's hopeless. They're never going to get out of there. But this little peck of light is their ticket off Corellia. Dude, that's so deep. I love it. It is super deep, right? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if that's intentional, but that's how I uh, that's how I feel about it. No, I think that makes a lot of sense because, um, and and obviously to sidetrack for a second, but just but the the idea though of that like little vial of coaxium, you know, holding their hope, right? It does. It, it represents their hope of escaping this hell, and it's so neat that that's again, it's kind of bookends for the film too. The movie opens with Han stealing that and you know, hoping that that's going to be enough to get them out of Corellia. And then at the end of the movie, even though they give it all up, Enfys gives them some back, and that's going to give him the hope to get his ship. You know, like his other big dream is to get his own ship, um, and that's going to be the catalyst for him getting that. So it's really neat how those that little thing of light is, is kind of the bookend of this film. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, you see this all throughout the movie, like little things like that, um, still in Proxima Slayer, uh, when Han is on quote-unquote trial uh, in front of her, everything is dark again. Like, you barely see anything, and Han is close to being made an example of, I guess, being killed. Uh, what does he do? He takes a quote-unquote thermal detonator, and he breaks a window. What comes out of the window? It's the light again, which makes him able to escape Hmm. you know it's always this little delight is always present in most of the scenes in the film um especially uh a little bit later in the um in the imperial customs light plays uh, a very important storytelling role as well well we'll we'll get to that at some point i guess (laughs) i'll follow you lead on this yeah, no, I didn't even think of that. And it's so cool too because the uh the light that Han makes, you know, break into the lair is dangerous to you know this serpent-like figure that is Proxima. Right? It's 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 the enemy of the light, really, right? Proxima hides underwater in this dank, you know, dark place and then when the light breaks in, it it cripples her. It's right? It's like poison for her. Yeah. Um, well, most of the creatures in her in her entourage, like there's this one guy, I think when the light hits him, he has this cool helmet that just, um, uh, it just closes itself off. Right, yeah, that's Moloch. But yeah, because Moloch's the same, and I'm embarrassed I don't know this, but he's the same species as Proxima. Um, I can't remember what that species is, but he's also, yeah, I mean, his skin is kind of, um, you know, it, it's not meant to be exposed to the light. So as soon as he gets it too, he just closes off into his mask. Um, that's so cool. I didn't, I just, I never even thought of that. How, how important light itself plays a role there. Um, well then you, you know, you're mentioning the, uh, when they go to the customs, uh, you know, the, 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 the border check, if you will, (laughs) um, you know, that the Imperials are running. Um, Yes. This is also very like it's still very dark in there. Yeah, um, I mean, on their way there, they're going through Corellia, and they are like, I, I don't know, they're outside, they're free, like everything is, um, you know, they're in plain daylight, right? Um, 
and you see it on their on their emotions they're having fun they're happy although they're being chased by all sorts of things um they're in trouble but they're like happy um the thing is once they get into these imperial customs um the light and the tone just dies down drastically again you only have these these narrow slits uh like ty- typically an imperial architecture i guess uh, that let in the light so there's just the light is being blocked by the empire um and then you see at all um in all of these shots you see like this crowd of people everything is dark and the only source of light in there that's again bathed in white light like complete um and complete white is behind the checkpoint where everybody's trying to get to and uh as we all know um han is the only one that can make it there like he's the only one that can make it to the other side um that was supposed to get both of them freedom um but the thing is kira gets abducted and everything everything goes bad everything goes south and the scene right after that i mean it's the um it's the battlefield scene like it's as bad as it can get yeah well, real quick though i i did not god you're you did your homework well this is why i love having an artist on because these are just things that i'm not noticing um but you're so right i'm looking at uh this you know this screen cap right now of them standing by the checkpoint wall. And I never realized how it is just kind of this washed out bright light on the other side of the checkpoint. Um, I just never really put that together, but yeah, it really does represent what they want to go into. Um, but even, yeah, but even that light, like you said, Chris is being kind of blocked by this wall, the, which is obviously symbolic of what the empire represents. It's, it's what keeps the light out of the galaxy. (laughs) So, yeah, <laughs> I um, mean we we we're going very far there in metaphors and symbolism, but <laughs> um, but it, it's not necessarily like they went to oh yeah they had the empire blocks the light. It's not necessarily what they thought, but it makes you feel that way. It makes you feel like you're being oppressed and um, we're like a moth trying to get to the light because mm. humans don't like to be in the dark. I mean, um, it's it, it's just natural. Obviously, we spend a lot of time in uh, in a room with a computer, uh, but everybody just likes being out in the light, and um, it's just natural, you know. Yeah, and even I uh, obviously we're pushing this a bit, but well, in like you said, Chris, you know the all the light that is within this particular set piece is what we we're used to with the Imperials, right? Like those, like that slit, um, like those slits of light, and. Even that, though, like, gives you this sense of, like, the Empire tries to control the light, though. Like, they allow how much is going to come in. They're going to it's, – it's a very controlling way of using light, um, which, again, is very indicative of the Empire. It's this, you know, malicious power. So, um, man, oh, God, I'm just, I'm just so stoked about the I, – I can't believe I never realized how, how cool that is, that it is, like, all this light. And then when the door opens and – Han goes to go through it. Like, it's like, oh, finally, we're going to go into the light. And, oh, sorry, Kira doesn't make it. Um, oh, that's so cool, man. Ah, I love it. Absolutely it's especially, I'm it. looking at the shot of uh, Han being behind the fence. And a fence looks so much more menacingly if there's light behind it. Like, to your unconscious mind. If, even if you don't pay attention to it, like, you still, uh, you still see it. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh. So, oh man, 
<laughs> God, Chris, you're awesome. This, but yeah, like I'm looking at what. So, Chris, Chris I, and I should, I should probably put a link of this on our on our social media so you guys can all just um, grab these screen. There's a you know solo screen cap website, um, but I'm looking at one of the shots of just Han banging on the glass, right, um, yelling to Kira, and the light is behind him. But what's so interesting is. He goes into the light, but immediately has to turn his back on it because he has to. He's focused on Kira, right? So he's not able to really enter the freedom of that light because as soon as he does, the person he wants to share it with is taken away from him. So he shifts his focus. He's banging on the wall, and he's he's going to have his back to the light because now what's important to him is getting Kira back. Um. So again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I don't care. <laughs> No, that's just good cinematography right there. Yeah. Um, there. There is a point to all of this. And if not, it's really, really happy accident. Yeah, <laughs> that's very good true. Good job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's so good. Um, but yeah, so then we go off to war on Mimbin. And, uh, Mimbin, is it called? Yeah. Um, now, Chris, did, are you, did you know that Mimbin is the name of the planet from... The very first ever Star Wars um, expanded universe novel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. I did not, but now yeah. I do. Thank you. So Splinter of the Mind's Eye uh, came out in 1977, late 1977, by Alan Dean Foster. And pretty much the entire story takes place on the planet of Mimbin. Um, and the reason he wrote it, it it's, it's, it's a terrible book, in my opinion. I read it with a group of friends uh, probably about six months ago. We did it as like a little book club group. And, uh, and people loved it when it first came out, which I can understand because the only thing you had was the first film. Um, but it just centers around um, Luke and Leia. And they're on the planet of Mimbin, which is like this dark and muddy planet. And Alan Dean Foster's idea was, well, if the movie kind of flops and they want to make you know a sequel but don't have a huge budget, this would be something easy to shoot on a soundstage. Because um, it's all shrouded in like you know, mist and mud and dark. So you don't need to have like these elaborate sets. Um, so that was kind of the point of Mimbin in that book all the way back in 1977. Um, and they've done a great job of recreating the look of Mimbin for the movie. Like they basically lifted that right out of that Splinter of the Mind's Eye novel. Oh, it is dark and muddy. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's putting it lightly. It's two key points of this entire sequence. Uh, it's really dark and really muddy. <laughs> Yep. Um, and that's, but like the only light, you know, if you will, that's in these particular scenes is the light of like blaster fire and explosions, right? It's the light of war. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not the kind of light that you want. Um, like the only light really that we see at some point is, um, well, the day after this, uh, this opening scene, uh, when he goes to Beckett and he discovers, oh, they're not actually soldiers. They could get me off this planet, right? So there's hope again. But um, Beckett makes uh, makes short work of him and has him thrown into yet another dark, muddy hole, right? So, yeah. um, and uh, yeah, it, it has a really nice rhythm to it, this entire scene, uh, when it comes to the light and dark. And when he finally escapes again, it's it's light again. Right, yeah, and then we get this really nice scene with um, with uh, with the with the music that you like so much. You like it too. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and they fly they fly through the mountains. Uh, I mean, I love that scene. 
It's beautiful. Flying with Chewie yep. is oh, such such a great great piece of music. Um, Flying with Chad Kroger. <laughs> yeah, this piece. I love that. Oh, I could listen to that on repeat all day. Yep. Um, and I you know. are listening to it on repeat every day. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but really quick, one of the things I was going to mention about Mimbin 2, because, um, I mean, again, there's not a whole lot to say because, like you said, Chris, it's just a muddy, dark planet. Um, the thing I like, though, too, is there's a lot of fog as well. Um, and, you know, it could be indeed just, you know, natural fog. It could also be battle smoke. Um, but what I was thinking about as far as a storytelling point goes is, uh, you know, fog, mist, you know, the smoke of war makes it hard to see things. And to me, it's like this is Hans trying to figure out what the heck to do, right? Like yeah. his plan by joining the Empire was to become a pilot and ideally probably eventually like just get off with his own ship and go get Kira. But everything is kind of like this tumultuous hell for him again right now. And I, I like that it's like the physical setting here is it's it's hard to see. It's unclear. And I think it kind of mimics what's going on in Han's own journey at that point is he's not really sure what he's going to do. And then, like you said, Chris, like the only big flash of light you get is that silhouette of Beckett coming up over the hill like Ponin noobs. And Han sees that light. That's and, and when he recognizes that, oh geez, these guys aren't Imperials. That's his hope to get off this place and to get out of here. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, that 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 use of like you said, like light. It's it's really doing a lot to tell the story. Are you making a very good point with the confusion element here because it underlines um, one of the only quotes that he has in this opening scene. Like, does this officer storming forward and? I, I don't remember the quote exactly, but he's like, let's Solo, charge forward. Solo, and, get up. We're almost there. Almost <laughs> where? Where are we going? <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, it perfectly underlines that um, uh, that quote, actually. He doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what they're doing. He doesn't know what he's doing there. He's not sure where he's going. It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> oh, man. Chris, look at us. We're such a dynamic duo. Oh, we're... we're Philosophers, <laughs> solo philosophers, which <laughs> oh, is fanboys, massive fanboys. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that's so perfect. I yeah, it, like his line there is so it's so on point um, for for what's going on in his story. Um, but yeah, you know um, when he, it, it's cool too that. I love the shot of the the AT hauler as it's flying out of the Mimbin atmosphere, and it gets up over the clouds, and you get the, that great shot of the star destroyers just there in the atmos- atmosphere as well, which is just I just think is a really cool visual shot. But like you've been saying, Chris, like kind of that theme of of that hope for freedom is is literally like on that ship as they. Well, they get up over the confusion. They get up over the chaotic mess of this war. They're they're breaking out of that. And then the very next thing we see is sunlight. You know, we see this beautiful sun actually like, you know, as we see, we our first shot of Vandor is from space and it's the sun kind of breaking up over the planet. Um, and then we immediately go down to the planet and we come through these soft clouds, right? We, we leave the the thick gray dark 
mists and shadows of Mimbin. And now we're coming through. We pass into these soft, white, fluffy clouds. And then, boom, it's this beautiful vista of these snow-capped mountains. And light is everywhere. Yeah. That is very true. Um, It's also one of the only truly relaxing scenes in the movie for for han yeah. it's like a scene where he truly enjoys the moment for the first time in you'd think years maybe maybe it's the three years is it three years i'm yeah, not sure yeah. there was a time skip yep, at some point yeah but it's three years okay uh yeah it's uh or how i as a viewer perceive it it's like the first time he can truly relax even if just for a little bit you know he's hanging out with his new friends uh with the band you know um around the campfire telling stories um well like i can relate to han in this moment and i'm just like oh yeah i'd like to be there very much you know Mm -hmm. let's road trip through through space let's do it i'd love and get to stand on a balcony i love balcony scenes in star wars so it's perfect especially if the balcony is flying you know that's great i know it's awesome (laughs) it's my favorite ship in star wars (laughs) um but you know, again, like I like the 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 colors here as they're arriving on Vandor because it really indicates um, a fresh start for Han too, right? He's free of the Empire. He's he's first, well, first off, he finally got free of Corellia. Now he's finally free of the Empire. Um, that's what the conversation he's having with Chewie's all about. You know, when was the last time you were free? It's been a while for me too. Um, but even just visually, the way the light is playing, um, you know. Uh, there's there's a lot of language in the book of Psalms and, and scripture about, you know, uh, you will make me as white as the snow. It's this idea of a new beginning that um, God will erase all the all the crap from our past, like all the all the crud that's corroded our lives. God will make it something fresh and new, like new fallen snow. It's this it's you get language like that a lot in the Psalms and it's just it's essentially indicating it's time for a fresh start. Um, and I feel like that's what's happening for Han here on Vandor is this is an opportunity to make a fresh start, do something new. Um, and- oh, yeah, that scene is 100 percent that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and the campfire scene, I mean, I love that scene. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's very little external lighting that Bradford Young's using in that shot. I mean, it's it, everything has that warm glow of the fire, right? Like all the characters are just bathed in this kind of warm glow of a fire and um, again, this th- that scene is very Western to me, and like a, like a Western movie where you mm. have characters just sitting around a campfire talking about themselves, talking about their lives, what's important to them. And um, I love that it's just kind of this, like, you know, it's a continuation, like you were saying, of what Han and Chewie are finally able to do on that balcony of just relaxing. This is them relaxing around a fire. And I feel like visually, like fire just connotates it like a campfire. It connotates something intimate and warm. And, you know, we know they're obviously on a cold planet. Han's bundled up. Everybody's bundled up. But there's just something about this this fire that gives it this this warmth um, in that scene. Yeah, this uh, sitting around the campfire, kissing blasters. It's, uh, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> um. Especially uh, that scene gives us opportunity to actually get to know um, the other two characters. Um, what was uh, Beckett's wife uh, wife's name again? Vale. Vale. Yeah. yeah. She, uh, well, we get to know her a little bit because um, obviously um, uh, Rio and her will not be around for much longer. So actually, we need to um, 
we need to get to know them a little bit right so um that's a nice that's a nice way to do it a nice intimate way to uh um to get to know them a little bit more because before they uh uh take a bullet right yeah yeah a little bit more than that (laughs) right now um what's cool is like during the 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 coaxium heist when they're you know stealing the stuff from the train the light there right it's early dawn it's so cool um you know and so it's it's not quite bright out but it's getting there right it's kind of this in-between time it's between the dark and the light but obviously it's moving towards the light um and uh and the first thing, the first thing it made me think of when I noticed that it's dawn in that scene is actually back like a long time ago. My dad's a big outdoorsman and goes hunting all every season. And when I was younger, like back in high school, I would get up and go hunting with him sometimes. And I always hated it because you had to get up before dawn, and I hated waking <laughs> up that early. And like you would go trudge into the freezing cold woods. Like I, I hated it, which is why I only did it for like two years. But. Um, but it was this beautiful time of day, right? As the sun, right before the sun comes up and then watching the sun come up. I mean, it's a beautiful time of the day. Um, and, and you kind of have to do that. Like as a hunter, you got to get in there before the lights out and the animals can see you very easily. Mm. Um, and I, I feel like that, that actually kind of translates pretty well to this. Like the reason they're pulling this heist off kind of at dawn, um, well, it's going to be a lot easier than doing it in the broad daylight, and they're probably not running trains in the middle of the night. So it just—I don't know—it just seems like it makes sense. Um, and I also like that it's dawn um, because, again, I feel like what that's telling us for Han's story is this is the dawn of Han's outlaw career, if you will. Oh, that's a good point. Interesting. Yeah, I mean this this is the this is the first scheme he's going to try to pull off. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Han doesn't really lose much during the uh during the highest right uh he's still feeling uh like he's having the time of his life he actually looks like he's having fun uh it's more like beckett that actually takes a be um yeah like he takes a little bit of a beating there uh many losses and everything um but it doesn't necessarily concern han that much mm, yeah i i i I would say I'd push back a little and say I think Han's a little when when Rio dies, the look on his face is like I think that's when it like gets real for him. He's like, holy crap, there's stakes here <laughs> i I mean of course, yeah, uh it's not like he's all happy, yeah, he's dead, right it's right, not like right. uh <laughs> it's not like that, um but we can also not i mean this whole light and dark we cannot generalize that every time it's light out happy stuff's going to happen and every time every time it's dark uh, they're going to be oppressed i mean you can't generalize these things um it's more of a mm. tool um but yeah i like the um uh, i like the metaphor of the hunt uh that you were they were saying earlier that uh the dawn is kind of the time of opportunity during the day mm-hmm. that you have to seize before it's too late it's uh because obviously the droids that are that are guarding the place they don't care if it's light outside or dark out or it's snowing or raining or raining frogs i they, they don't care you know they have sensors so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true um well then you know uh we get on board dryden's yacht um there's a lot of light on there a lot of light coming through the windows you know what i mean yeah, I like how it, it it feels like it's a bit foggy inside. Don't you have the same impression? Yeah, there actually is. It, and it just makes me think of like probably everybody's like smoking their hookahs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're vaping. Yeah, they're all vaping. 
Yeah, I'm looking at some of the images now. It's uh, it's it's super mysterious. This whole thing. It's like it kind of resonates with me how I feel at parties with lots of people there. Like there's so much going on, but I don't really see anything, even though everything is perfectly clear. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Like I'm 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 a bit introverted, so I don't feel comfortable at parties and at crowds. That's a bit how I feel. Hmm. And the moment like he walks around confused with his glass of wine, not sure what to do with it, you know, and uh, and then he sees uh, then he sees Kira, and then everything comes together. You know, he forgets everything around him. Yeah. It's like kind of at a party when you see a guy that you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, and I, I I watched the movie again this morning, and and I you know with a particular intention of trying to pay attention to just the color and the lighting. Um, and yeah, there is almost like there's a hazy quality when they're, when they're first initially in the yacht during that party. Um, and I, I like your, uh, what you're implying that it, it could be in part, cause like it's a little bit overwhelming for Han, but I think it also fits that crowd. Well, right. I mean, it's, it's a party they're drinking. They're probably doing, they're probably doing some spice, you know, <laughs> they're probably doing some Kessel spice. I mean, this is a motley crew. Like, they're probably doing some illicit things. Um, so it's kind of neat that you get that hazy quality. Yeah, and I think I'm seeing a death trooper up there. A very really? small death trooper. Where? Um, he's like, um, there's like a circular balcony above the crowd. And there's like a guy and his silhouette reminds me of the death trooper. It's super oh, okay. weird. It's a thing. You can't really make... You can't really make out anything there. And are these imperial moths there? Yeah, I mean, it, and obviously, they're, whether they're moths or they're obviously imperial higher ups, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah officers. Yeah. I, everything wearing this uniform is, as far as I'm concerned, is a moth. I'm going to make enemies here, but though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it. But and what's what's neat in, in Dryden's yacht, though, too, is the, the use of like the gold palette, right? Everything's kind of bathed in this gold, um, and you know it's it, Han. Han's kind of impressed with all this, right? Like he comes in, he's kind of got this grin on his face. Of it just makes me think, like you know, he wants this stuff too. Like he wants to live the high life. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, that's what gives appeal to criminals in in our world too, right? I mean. I guess they see their bosses um, driving big cars, uh, owning big mansions, and like the small-time crooks. Of course, they want a piece of the pie, right? Yeah. And it, well, you know, and it also um, this doesn't have anything to do with color and light, but just going with what you were just saying. Um, you know, there's a lot of people. This is I can speak to like the American culture. A lot of people that generally are, are lower income, um, you see them a lot of times like buying lottery tickets or in, investing and trying to find you know quick ways to make a ton of money. And I'm not saying this is a way of belittling them, but you know they see they see the massive wealth that's uh, you know that's available to some people, and they just they want a piece of that pie, like you put it. And I think for Han, you know, you, and you you're trying to kind of find the quick way to get it. And I think that's why like Han comes in, he's impressed with all this. Han comes from nothing. So it makes sense that he he wants something, um, and he sees all this, and he's he's going to want to do whatever it takes to to be to get to be part of that. Um, so 
Yeah, that's a good point, Chris. I mean, we all know Han. Um, that that's how we, we we know and love him, right? He wants to he wants to get loaded so that he can live the life, I guess. Um, well, in this movie, still ideally with Kira, like that's that's still his main goal: uh, get rich, buy a ship, take Kira, um, have a beautiful life. Yeah. So at this point, at this point of the movie, it's still his prime motivation. It's not necessarily, oh, I, I want to own a ship like this. This is this is great. I like the gold. Right. Right. Good point. Um, but uh, yeah. Well, then we kind of go into this like Sabak game. Um, am I skipping over anything? I don't want to. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, uh, there's so much to go uh, to go over in this movie. It's uh, it's hard to put it all in one uh, in one episode. But I, I think people are getting the I'm getting a general idea. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, but yeah, it's it's neat, though, that going into the, uh, you know, the Sabak game. And um, I remember this was on one of the behind-the-scenes featurettes that uh, the Bradford Young only used the actual lighting that was available in the in the scenes themselves. So basically, the sets they built, the light, the lighting within those sets is all that he used there. He didn't use any external stuff. And again, I think that's why it is kind of a, a darker setting again. Um and you know, I love that shot of Han. And again, we saw this in the trailers too. And, and it was one of my favorite shots in the trailers, but the, the shot of Han, like kind of stepping into this like silhouette, right. As right before he walks down to the table. Um, and what I've always loved about that is that, you know, Han is kind of once again, surrounded by this darkness. He's kind of in a seedy spot, but, but Han silhouettes in the light, you know, like, uh, it's it's really paramount to what Kira says at the end of the movie that he is the good guy. Like even though Han has always grown up in these dark places and he's very comfortable, right? He's very comfortable at that sabak table. He's very comfortable in seedy situations because of the life he grew up in. And yet Han's Han's not part of it. Like he's somehow distinct from it. Mm. Um, the light kind of bathes Han in that shot, which I think is really cool. Yeah, um, it also bathes uh, Lando actually, but that's I think that's um, has to do with a lot of the a compositional point of view. Like you want the two main characters obviously to be lit more than the secondary characters so that they stand out. Sure. Yeah. Also, I guess Lando's wardrobe uh, really helps with that. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty bright. Um. Well, the. Uh you know, let's talk about the lighting on the Falcon, right? So once they, they finally leave Vandor and they're going to head off to Kessel, the lighting on the Falcon is, it's very soft and kind of mostly white colors, um, very light. There's something very comforting and relaxing to me in the interior of the Falcon in this movie. What do you think about it? Uh, I mean, the interior of the Falcon in this movie is definitely... It's a lot more welcoming than the Falcon in the other movies. Mm. Uh, well, part of the reason, I guess, is that it's clean, and I like clean surfaces. You know, it's uh, it's, but yeah, it's it's a little bit more lit, but it's still pretty. It's still pretty dark, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm looking through them actually in the uh, in the can you call it living area where I play um, hollow chess. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it's actually pretty nice. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I the but the just yeah. There's something about all the lighting whenever they're on the Falcon. Well, and especially the initial part when they're on the way to Kessel. Because again, it's another opportunity for some sense of rest and relaxation. Because a lot of this movie is just action. Um, and there's something about the way that the Falcon is lit that makes me just feel like okay, this is a home place. This is a place where you can feel at home. You can just kind of put your feet up just a little bit and relax. Yeah, it's a very it's a very clean, um, non-threatening environment. I I think like you notice it more once there's a transition to when they're escaping with the coaxium. Um, the cockpit actually lights up in uh, lights up a little bit differently. I think at some point it's it's pretty red. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, of course when you approach the mall, yeah. So um the connection of that with the um with the original trilogy movies, for example, the Falcon was well, most of the time we're in the Falcon cockpit, somebody wants to kill you, right? So actually the first time we are in Lando's Falcon and we're all still uh, like nobody wants to kill them. Nobody's out to get them directly. Like they're not being chased. Um, so that might be why you feel particularly at ease in Lando's Falcon at the moment. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the moment they approach the Ma, everything lights up red, and um, there's lights flashing everywhere. Like we're thrown back into that um, in, into that OT uh, environment. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That, um, well, to be fair, they are being tracked by Enfys Nest. They don't know it, um, so that's the difference, right? Like we know from that exterior shot of the tracker on the hull that they are being tracked. Um, so there's danger there, but they don't have a clue. So, oh yeah, but okay, I uh, we don't know much about Enfys Nest yet, but I prefer getting just getting tracked by her than being chased by f- four or five Tie Fighters in a. In the Kessel run, you know, like uh, <laughs> yeah, my, my priorities are sorted out, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's very fair. Um, well, let's talk about the colors on Kessel, the planet of Kessel. Um, again, another kind of dirty and dark planet. Yeah, it kind of reminds you of the... Um, uh, of the first planet we were, but just... Uh, what was the name again? Corellia? No, no, no. The, the, um, Vander? The, plan- Vandor? the muddy planet. Oh, Mimbin. Mimbin. So Kessel is kind of like I imagine Mimbin being during daylight. <laughs> okay. Like, not very welcoming. I mean, uh, you see it. There's like toxic gas everywhere. Um, it's still not a welcoming environment, even if it's daylight outside. Like, at night, this must be horrible there. It's. Uh... Yeah. But yeah, it, it's really hard to um, to imagine myself living there in Castle. Yeah, I don't um, want an apartment there. Well, it seems like yeah, whatever what, you know, all the spice mining they're doing on Castle, um, and even even the old EU canon, like the old novels when Castle was in it, Castle always was kind of this desolate planet where they mined beneath the surface. So it was kind of always a dead planet to begin with. Um, but it also makes me think of. Um, that that huge amount of industrialization though also kills planets. Um, you get that in the Ahsoka novel. You get that in some of the Rebels content with how when the Empire goes to planets and they start industrializing it, they essentially kill the planet. Um, and uh, so I like that that that's part of the look of Kessel as well is that this this over manufactured p- 
planet, of course, is dead. And this the 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 toxic green color of whatever that liquid is, whatever those toxic fumes are, um, the color reminds me a lot of the kind of toxic green color of the lights on the Invisible Hand in Revenge of the Sith, um, which is mm. the color of the enemy, right? Um, like the bridge. And they obviously use that color palette in the Clone Wars as well. Whenever we're on the bridge of like a, a separatist ship, it's kind of that toxic green color. Um, and I just thought that that was neat that it is some similar color palette there on Kessel. Um, and it's controlled by the Pikes, which are a Clone Wars uh, reference, which is cool. Oh, yeah, Clone Wars. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, actually um – when you when you look at Castle when they approach it, it actually looks beautiful from afar, and um, I don't know. It's really hard to imagine all the uh, the tech away, but I th- I think Castle could actually look pretty beautiful without the uh, without all the industry, um, like you mentioned. It reminds me of um, you know, like a national park with geysers and um, that volcanic activity. It's it's actually pretty nice when you when you walk through these things. It's just in that context with the um, with the factory and the pipes and everything around. It, it just loses its appeal. Sure. Yeah, definitely. It's actually very interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and the other the other thing I was going to mention with um, with Kessel is. Um, Obviously, just the the exterior of Kessel, like the when we're you know making the Kessel run through the Maelstrom. The Maelstrom once again is this uh, something shrouded with these dark, thick clouds and these car you know these these carbon bergs or whatever. Um, you know, there's something very oppressive about that that environment. Um, there's something scary about it. You mean the big tentacle monster aside? Yes, the big tentacle monster aside. Oh, yeah, I mean the uh, the center of Castle. What is it? The gravity well or yeah, the black the hole? Yeah, it looks absolutely terrifying. Like with all the stuff that we know in Star Wars, um, super super star destroyers, Death Stars, Emperors, Sith, Jedi, everything pales in comparison to that to that stupid gravity well. It's probably the most dangerous thing in Star Wars we have seen so far. <laughs> yeah, because it literally will suck anything into it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it doesn't matter who you are. You, you get, I mean, we see it with our friend uh, um, Tentacle Monster. We, we need to give him a name. Um, but we see it with him. Even he has no chance against it. I assume it's a he. Um, he just gets sucked right into that thing. And yeah, that thing is terrifying to me. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's such a great environment for this. It's uh, I love it. Yeah, and and like you've obviously referenced several times now, the uh, you know all the red though that the the color of red that takes over the cockpit during a lot of this scene, mm. um, right? Just to give us that feel of danger and of threat as they're trying to escape. Yeah, and guess what? Like the well, literally, it sucks in all the light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's a place where light goes to die. Right, that's a great point. Um, yeah, good point, Chris. Um, We're getting deeper and deeper. <laughs> I know it, <laughs> like a gravity well. Yes, <laughs> the, 
Um, well, then we finally make it to Savarine at the end of the movie. And Savarine, once again, we're on kind of a desert planet. Um, which, by the way, desert planets in Star Wars are incredibly important, right? You know, Tatooine is the birthplace of the Skywalkers. Jakku is where Rey is. Um, desert planets tend to be places where hope comes from. Um, but more than anything, they're clearly bathed in light. And the whole end of this movie on Savarine, um, you know, the goodness of Han is really on full display. You know, he can't, he can't hide in the dark here. Like Kira says, he's the good guy and the motives of his heart. While yes, there's certainly a selfishness to it. Like he's just, like he says to Becca, you know, I'm just trying to make it out of it alive. There's more to it. He chooses to help Enfys. Like Han plays the good guy. It's on full display in the light of Savarine. Mm, yeah. So it's technically the birthplace of Han as he found himself. Like he, uh, he gets rid of his mentor um, and he finally knows who he is, maybe. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, I don't know how they are about sequels with this movie, if there's going to be another Solar movie or Calrissian movie or Boba Fett movie, whatever. I'm not sure if they still have plans for it, but as far as I'm concerned right now, on this planet is the moment where Han kind of finds his direction. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's it's where Han loses everything, but does gain Chewie. Um, and yeah, you know, um, it's it's all bathed in light. And then the the I don't know the name of the last. I mean, I don't know it off the top of my head. The planet where they go to meet up with Lando, and he ultimately finally wins the Falcon. Florida. <laughs> yeah, basically, it's like space <laughs> space Florida. Space Florida. <laughs> um. But there's something really neat about that planet as well. It's you know the way they kind of the cinema, you know the the shot of it coming down through the jungle. Um, there's something very Garden of Eden here. Like this is the place of this is a paradise type place, and this is where Han's finally going to go and get that ship that he's been wanting. Um, and again, it's another place that's full of light and natural light. You know, um, there's something very life giving to this planet, and this is where Han's new life is going to spark. He's finally going to set out into those stars that we're told he wants to be flying among. He's finally going to set out there from this kind of idyllic paradise type place. Yeah, this planet is so mysterious that we don't see a lot of it, but I'd kind of like to know more about that place. Yeah, it's really cool. Maybe there's something we already know, but we don't. That's Yeah, could be Avon 4. I mean, I doubt it, but actually, I hope not. I don't want it to be having for. Take that back. No, Never mind. Felucia. <laughs> yeah, it could be Felucia. No. Yeah. Felucia's too wild. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that pretty much colors, er, colors, <laughs> covers the colors of this film and the, and the use of light. And, and um, you know, obviously the movie ends with them flying into the stars, you know, um, surrounded by light. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great use of uh, a color palette throughout the movie yeah it's definitely something when you watch solo for the next time um even though darkness in this movie is very dominant and it hides a lot and it might be annoying sometimes um it has purpose i believe so uh at least Mm. and um 
it adds a lot to the movie without adding too much, without making it too flashy. Right. It's not we don't always have to see all the details. Sometimes a little mystery is good. Yeah. No, that's a great point, Chris. So yeah, next time you watch the movie, pay attention to how light is being used and and see if there's anything you pick up on that maybe Chris and I didn't mention in the episode and definitely, you know, share that through through the social media. Um but yeah, that's I think that's going to wrap up this this second episode of the solo cast. Um Chris, where can people check out your art? Oh, uh, oh that's a good question. I think it's uh, at Chris D. And that should cover all the bases, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It's easy to find you if you just look up Chris D. D-E-E, in case you're wondering oh, how to spell that. I'm the only Chris D on planet Earth. <laughs> um, well, of course, you can you can interact with anything... Uh, a Wampuslayer podcast wise um, by just finding us at Wampuslayer on Twitter or Wampuslayer podcast on, on Facebook. Um, so yeah, if you, if you have any insight into the lighting of solo, definitely let us know. I'll be always interested to hear what other folks have seen or, or think about this sort of stuff. Um, Chris, anything else from you? Yeah. Uh, also let us know about your favorite shot in a movie. Yeah. That's always fun to know. <laughs> um, Great. Well, uh, is that it? I think so. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this second episode of the solo cast. I am Carl LeClaire, and for my good friend here, Chris D., we will see you next time on the solo cast or in the Wampas Lair. <laughs>